This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. This conversation is part of a continuing series at the University of South Carolina, sponsored by the College of Arts and Sciences. And with me is my guest, Professor Mark Smith. Mark, let's talk a little bit about you. Well, uh, first of all, thank you for having me on, Walter. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have a chat. I am not from around these parts. You're from Spartanburg. (laughs) By way of Mississippi, I believe. (laughs) I am, of course, uh, an Englishman by birth, just south of London. And I came to the United States as a graduate student at the University of South Carolina, where I took my MA and my PhD. So I'm a thoroughgoing English gamecock. And then I returned to the United Kingdom and taught at the University of Birmingham for several years. And then I had the honor to be invited to interview at my alma mater, came back, and haven't looked back since. So I might sound different, but the Carolina blood runs deep with me. There's one thing you did not mention. Yes, you are English by birth, but you grew up in a military family. I think that's pretty important. Your, Your father and your stepdad were both in the paratroops, which are the special forces of the Royal Army, and I I think that's something. You literally grew up Berlin, Northern Ireland, all sorts of different places. Yeah, my father was in the parachute regiment 24 years, and so I was something of an army brat. I sort of shuttled around. A very interesting experience. He was stationed in Belfast, and then we were stationed in Berlin, and uh, I could see the Berlin Wall from my bedroom window, and that was interestingly enough, on an American Air Force base. And I grew up learning a great deal about American things, such as Sesame Street and Bonanza. But you still don't know about football. I still don't know. Well, which football are you talking about? (laughs) Okay. Really, an incredible background, and he is one of our own, and he came back here, and I just... He's been a great addition to the faculty since 1998. So, Mark, let's pick up where we left off last with Dr. Glenn when we were talking about the emancipation and the context and sort of what happens after that. There, there's some follow-throughs. Within two months in March, the United States Congress passes the Conscription Act mm-hmm. of 1863 to conscript every white male from 18 to 45 into the Union Army. Except there was an out, right? There was an out. You could buy your substitute for the princely sum of $300. And there were lots of other outs too. Um, If you were a judge, you were not subject to subscription. You were not obliged to serve if you worked in the railroad industry. If you had various physical difficulties or even mental issues were included. But for the most part, adult men were obliged to serve. The responsibility for drafting devolved on the states, and states took some pride in meeting their quota so that the draft didn't have to be implemented. But not every state met its quota, and there was, in fact, some resistance. One of the reasons that they had to put in the draft is that they were not meeting their quota. And after the emancipation, there were whole regiments. I think there were two regiments in Illinois that refused to fight and were disbanded because they were not going to fight for abolition. They would fight for the Union, but they were not going to fight for abolition. And I think this is a really kind of interesting point that deserves some remembrance. You know, we know how the Civil War turned out. Um, and the tendency, of course, is to read history backwards so that the causation is very smooth in retrospect. Hindsight is, in fact, 2020, isn't it? But at the time, and on the ground, things were far more complicated. Things were far more nuanced, and there were tensions both within the Confederacy and within the Union. And I think, historically, we can lose sight of those tensions and those difficulties and those, those internal conversations if we don't remember the context in which they were happening. So, Walter, you're entirely right. There was resistance, not only to the draft, um, but there was resistance to the idea that this would be exclusively a war about emancipation. And you've got to deal with people that Lincoln and his allies would have called disloyalists, the, the copperheads, the, the peace democrats. And after, after we get into the spring of 1863, and this is the background for Gettysburg, things begin to look dicey for the Union and sort of up for the Confederacy, particularly with regard to Europe. 
Well, I think there, there are lots of things going on here, and I think dicey is exactly the right word. As I say, you know, we know how it ends, but that doesn't mean to say that there weren't significant tensions within the United States in 1863. Bear in mind, this is not the end of the war. We're just past the midway point. So lots of things are going to happen after Gettysburg. So you have tensions within Northern society. You mentioned the Copperheads. Peace Democrats and Democrats generally tended to be vociferous opponents of Lincoln. You had Clement Vallandigham, a bunch of other people who were actively trying to undermine Lincoln's kind of Republican emancipation strategy. And they were arguing, look, we need to, to establish a peace relationship. That is to say, put ourselves in a position where we can restore the Union have, have Confederate input on that restoration and establish peace because this is too onerous for us at the moment. In the autumn of 1863, after Gettysburg, this, this tells you why Gettysburg is so important. The Peace Democrats, the people, the Copperheads, the folks trying to undermine Lincoln, essentially lose any real authority that they had developed before that. Now, of course, there's the election in 1864, which is quite fraught, but prior to Gettysburg, Peace Democrats were way more powerful than they were after Gettysburg. So that victory allowed Lincoln to, to reaffirm his authority over this war. But that's also why the Confederacy was looking to make a move, particularly with regard to European recognition. Well, of course, and this is where Professor Glimpf ended the last conversation, with the idea that after Antietam, um, Lincoln felt empowered to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. And at that point, the British kind of stepped back from any potential intervention on the part of the Confederacy. And that is certainly true, but I think it's a, a deeper and more complicated relationship. First of all, we have to bear in mind that the British were not uns unsympathetic to the Confederacy from the very beginning of the war. I mean, in autumn 1861, very early on, the British almost at least theorized the idea of intervening on the part of the Confederacy because of Lord, the Trent Affair. Yeah. Lord Palmerston? Palmerston said, and you know, he was quite agitated about this, that uh, unless the Lincoln administration apologized uh, for what was an act of piracy on a British merchant ship, the Trent, which was carrying Confederate envoys to Europe, unless he apologized, not only would the Union not get its saltpeter, which is the key ingredient of gunpowder, which was on London docks ready to be shipped to the DuPont Company in the United States in the north, but if you go to the British Public Records Office, there is a document that outlines a plan of attack, mm -hmm. an attack that the British, had they not received the apology and had tensions escalated within the north, could conceivably have been enacted. And the attack, if you look at it, is quite revealing. First of all, the attack called for the intensification of the Atlantic Squadron, the British Squadron, which would have helped undermine any Union blockade attempts. The second part of the plan called for British reinforcements of Confederates from the South to move north. And bear in mind, Canada is still British at this point. They would have come down with a pincer movement from the north, and the argument was we can contain and crush the Union. What's going on there is not that the British are necessarily sympathetic to slavery. They're sympathetic to money. The, the principal trading, I know that sounds outrageous, doesn't it? Greedy British, my word, no. We, we built empires out of, you know, a sense of justice. Um, but let's suspend that disbelief for just a moment. The principal trading partner um, with the United Kingdom, at least from the transatlantic perspective, was not necessarily just the North, but really the South. Cotton from the South ended up in Liverpool. But interestingly enough, the New Yorkers were heavily invested in this connection too, because the cotton usually went and increasingly went from Charleston to New York, where it was brokered, and then to Liverpool, which is why early on in the war, New York was quite sympathetic to staying out of this issue. Yes, Mayor Wood was actually thinking about talking about having New York City secede from That's right. New York. That's right. And this is a great <laughs> illustration. Well, I've heard the argument since, too. But, um, <laughs> but it's important to bear in mind that the details and the specific connections that unite what's... We, we tend to work in blocks of knowledge, don't we? The North and the South. And that's certainly a, a valuable understanding. But complexity matters. And at the beginning of the war, these connections between Britain in particular and the Confederacy are real, and they could have proved enduring. 
Now, as we heard last time, after the Emancipation Proclamation, the British start to step back a bit. But they haven't left the picture entirely. And that's because there has been no decisive military victory. That's right. And so what the British are really waiting for is something that rules out the Confederacy with some degree of certainty. And that turns out to be Gettysburg. And, and so would you consider this, they were looking for a victory. Had, in this case, the Confederacy achieved something like that, then that would have given Palmerston and others what he needed. Well, I mean, I, there, there is some truth to that. Now, to be, to be sure, I mean, we need to put this into perspective. The voices calling for British recognition of the Confederacy were, were dwindling. They were becoming fewer and quieter. There, there were a couple of members of Parliament, particularly from industrial areas that benefited from the connection with the Confederacy, that did call, put motions in Parliament calling for a recognition of the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. After Gettysburg, those voices dwindled to nothing, and in fact, by, by the autumn of 1863, whatever diplomatic ties had existed were, were no longer in existence. In fact, the Confederacy recalled its envoys from London. The Confederacy was not foolish enough to think that the British would actively intervene on their side. What they wanted was recognition of belligerent status, because belligerent status allows you to trade and bear in mind, there were two Ironsides ready to be shipped from Liverpool to not the Confederacy necessarily, but a private buyer within the Confederacy. That was legal. After Gettysburg, Lord Russell, in fact, cancels the project and, in fact, buys the Ironsides so that he avoids any liability. So this is an important moment because it essentially stops or negates any possible future relationship with the Confederacy in Britain. So in the spring of 63, as we said, things were dicey. And Lee and Davis think that a bold move, another invasion of, of the North, 1862, it ends at Sharpsburg or Antietam. Uh, but a, another decisive move would embolden those peace Democrats. It would shake up the diplomatic situation. And so they're also thinking in, with regard to the peace Democrats, Alexander Stevens, the Vice President of the Confederacy, is putting out feelers to have negotiations concerning prisoner of war trade with some other considerations. Nobody knows exactly now what those were, but it's suspected that he was in cahoots with Van Landingham and there were going to be peace negotiations. And the irony would be that when he finally asked for a flag of truce to get to Norfolk, where the negotiations would take place, his request and the news from Gettysburg arrive at the White House on the same day. Timing. Best laid plans. Best laid plans. Now, Gettysburg is, I don't care whose history book you read, whether it was written in the North after the war, in the South after the war, if it was written by military historians in, in Europe, is viewed as one of the turning points. Now, there were a lot of turning points, but Antietam was one, clearly. But if you look at the collection of turning points in 1863, Gettysburg was, was very, very important, particularly for these ancillary issues we're talking about, diplomacy and, and, and what have you. And the interpretation of the battle has certainly changed over time. You're entirely right. It, you know, years ago, historians tended to identify Gettysburg as the turning point of the American Civil War. Mm -hmm. And since then, they have revised their understanding, not to say that it's unimportant, because plainly it's terribly important, but it's not the most important moment. So instead of Gettysburg, more recent interpretations have stressed the impact of Antietam, the impact of the Emancipation Proclamation, and then of Vicksburg. So increasingly, these other events have been elevated in their importance, and Gettysburg tends to have been overshadowed, I think in a way quite wrongly, for its, its um, sort of pivotal importance. Uh, and for the reasons that we've mentioned, and I would just like to mention one other thing that's going on here. Um, it's not just that this invasion could have turned the politics of the elections in 1863, the autumn 1863, around. It's not just that Gettysburg deferred or rather permanently canceled British in, in, involvement. The French were also, as usual, hanging around, sniffing for a bit of power, you see. And I can say that because I'm English. <laughs> Bear in mind, they had just appointed Napoleon III in Mexico. 
they're not very far. They're not very far. In fact, Napoleon offers. He says, oh, you know, we would like to mediate a peace for you if you'd so care. And Seward responds, no, we don't want your help. We don't want your intervention because European diplomacy at this point is very simple. You offer to help, then you start carving things up and get goodies for yourself, right? Things really haven't changed that much. But nonetheless, so you have the French issue, the English issue, the, you know, the, the postponement of foreign intervention. And the Union wants to keep this an internal question without recognition of the Confederacy. So I think that Gettysburg is important for its externalities too. Now, the one argument that historians tend to make, and, and rightly so, is that Gettysburg as a moment, as a battle, was the greatest battle of the Civil War, measured in, in very kind of um, dark terms, to be sure, usually in the, the extent of death. And the scale of this carnage uh, is very difficult to conceptualize in actual fact. This is an instance where numbers are very cold and they don't quite capture What's really going Let on? Let me just give some of those numbers. By the way, they have been steadily increased as sources have increased access to sources over time. The latest that we can interpolate is the Confederacy suffered 28,000 casualties. Now, that's not killed. That's casualties. That means folks taken out of operation. About 3,600 killed, almost 18,000 wounded, and 7,200 either prisoners of war or missing in action. On the Union side, there were about 3,100 killed, 14,500 wounded, and 5,400 prisoners of war are missing. So combined, you're talking more than 50,000 casualties suffered at this little Pennsylvania crossroads in July 1863. Now, in terms of the scale of death and looking at the census, which is really one of Mark's specialties, how things smell, how things taste, how things feel. I read a description of Gettysburg by a contemporary historian, and I know he had to get this from the 19th century because it's not the way he writes. He referred to the cornucopia of carrion spread over the land on July the 5th, 1863. The cornucopia of carrion. Now, we're not just talking about human dead. We're talking about mules, horses. I think you told me Drew Faust, our friend, uh, at a school up north estimated that what, six million pounds of flesh? Human and horse, there were 3,000 dead horses uh, on that field. So I have seen an, a little piece that you're working on, an article that has to do with, well, one sound at Gettysburg. And I think that's an important, let's just, mm -hmm. let's just get Mr. Mead and the, and the sound out of that, out of the way. So just to give you some context here, I'm very interested in what it must have been like to be in that battle, what it felt like. Not the grand aerial view of diplomacy, that interests me, but what really animates my work is what was it like to be at that moment in one of those charges? And it seems to me that the best way to understand that experience is to try to understand how people mediated that experience through their senses. By that I mean, how did they see the battlefield? How did they smell it? How did they hear it? Okay, so these sensory components are very important for trying to get to the very guts of what it meant to fight at Gettysburg. Now, I consider a great deal to do with smell, which I'll talk about in, in just a moment, but Walter's asking me about sound at the moment. And one of the odd things about Gettysburg, as well as several other significant battles of the Civil War, is obviously they were very noisy affairs. You, know, you have a 110 cannon going off just before Pickett's charge, and it's so loud that it feels like an earthquake. The, the sheer power, the vibrational power of that sound. You have deathly screams of men being shot. You have quiet groans of the dying. So the soundscape of this, this battlefield, I think, is very revealing of what it must have been to experience the battle. But sometimes our ears mislead us, and for good reason. Meade wasn't there at the very beginning of Gettysburg. And one of the reasons he wasn't there, and there were several, but one of them is that he couldn't hear it going on. He couldn't hear the start of it. 
He couldn't hear the start of it because of um, something that historians call acoustic shadows. Under certain conditions, under certain um, topographic conditions, under certain temperature conditions, if the weather is just right, a sound that is being made over here will not be heard over here. It might be heard even farther to the west, but not to the east. And during the war, there are lots of instances where commanding officers send their troops in a completely wrong direction because they think that something is happening to the left flank. In fact, it's happening to the right. This, to me, is interesting both, I think, tactically. In other words, people <coughs> miss here, and you can't really blame them for sending troops the wrong way because they actually think it's coming from the, the other direction. But also, um, when we recreate Civil War battles, which I find absolutely fascinating, that's one of those instances that you can't recreate. It is the accident of history. It's beyond your control. You can't recreate a moment. And in a way, there's a kind of lesson about history there. Sometimes history is beyond our capture. Now, we can understand it from the historical records, but to recreate it is a very difficult thing because there is this thing called chance. And chance does affect Gettysburg, and it affects several other battles too. They just think if Meade had known about that phenomenon, he could have responded to all of his critics in Washington after the battle. And he had lots of critics. And he had lots of critics. Um, and I don't know if Meade, in fact, was aware that there was an acoustic shadow. He knew that he was late, but I don't think that he invoked the idea of an acoustic shadow. Well, let's talk now about the physical experience at Gettysburg. We'll separate out Pickett's charge and talk about that as an individual item coming up. But let's, let's talk about the smell of battle. Gettysburg, not just July 1, 2, 3, and 4, but six weeks later. So if, if you begin to pay attention to the way that people describe Gettysburg, almost everybody talks about the stench of that moment, the stench of death on a scale that was unprecedented and has never been repeated. And this is a good way of illustrating that numbers themselves can hide a fact rather than illuminate a fact. You know, how do you conceive of 50,000 people, either dead or wounded? How do we understand that? That's larger than the university by far. 50,000 people, if you assume that the average human body is 12 inches thick, it's 50,000 feet if you pile those bodies on top of each other. That's higher than a jetliner flies. Now, let's imagine that we're just dealing with the dead. We're talking what? About 10,000 people. The dead, depending upon the figure, 7,000. Some have gone as high as 10, but 7 to 10. And you've got some injured, wounded people who aren't going to make it off the field, right? So roughly speaking, you're talking about a lot of people to take care of after they're dead. I have this wonderful observation a day before Gettysburg, there's a Union uh, medic who's, who's there, not anticipating a battle, and he describes Gettysburg, the small town of 2,400 people. Now, bear in mind that this is happening in a civilian area, but the, the, town, the town's total population is vastly eclipsed by, by the death at Gettysburg. And he describes what Gettysburg smells like before the battle. And he says it's such a wholesome smell. I can, I can smell the trees and the fields. And he talks about the smells of flowers. And it's a beautiful description. Day one of Gettysburg, you have significant death. And even uh, at the end of day one, people are starting to talk about the growing stench of, of death. But they really talk about the smell of blood on day one. Day two, it's becoming more rancid. By day three, Bear in mind, this is July. The average temperature is 79, 80 degrees. These bodies are beginning to bake. They're beginning to expand. The wounds are festering. Maggots are starting to infest. You can smell Gettysburg, not just on July 4th or 5th or 6th. You can smell Gettysburg in October. It doesn't come up when Lincoln offers his address in November but people are talking about the stench of Gettysburg months after it's happened. And the reason why is they cannot bury the dead bodies fast enough, and they cannot bury them deep enough. Veterans mentioned this when we began to have blue and gray reunions in the 1880s and 1890s. That's one thing they talk about, is Gettysburg is back to being a rural area again. 
there's, there's a wonderful illustration of this. In 1912, there's a reunion, and these veterans come back from both sides. And they say, you know, it's a wonderful reunion. Um, I'm glad to see some of my colleagues. But it's not Gettysburg, because it doesn't smell. It's been scrubbed clean. You know, time has erased the real meaning. And what I'm trying to say here is that certainly Gettysburg has all sorts of ennobling qualities to it. I mean, brave men died here. People did things that I wouldn't have the courage to do. And it's important that we recognize that. So this is a kind of a courageous moment, an ennobling moment. And that's what, that's what Lincoln says when he goes to give his address. He says, this ennobling action, this noble action, is, is a, a civilized moment in a way, but something greater than just us. And yet, the people who experience Gettysburg don't talk about it in those terms. They talk about it as a throwback to a scent-ravaged, distant medieval past. This is something that isn't noble. This is something that is deeply human, deeply disconcerting. Bear in mind that these people think of themselves as modern. In 1860, northerners and southerners see themselves as resolutely civilized. They are the most modern people in the world. They're embracing the modern. But to get there, they have to go back several centuries. This war is a throwback in terms of experience. And that has to do with using 18th and 19th century tactics and modern weapons. You know, the incredible speed with which one could, could kill folks. So the technology of war is such that you can, you can kill people more efficiently than ever before. And that accounts in part for the large scale of death at Gettysburg. That's a good illustration actually of British intervention because a good number of these rifles were Enfield rifles with British ammunition. This stuff had made its way through the blockade. You know, the British are involved in this indirectly all the time. Some contemporaries realize that there is a very famous photograph that was exhibited all throughout the North, and it's called the Harvest of Death. Now today, it's illegal in the United States to take pictures of either your own dead on the battlefield or the enemy dead on the battlefield. But there, as far as you can see in this Harvest of Death, it's just this stretch of bodies, and they, ha they are beyond day two. People first saw these photographs after Antietam. There were some pretty gruesome ones exhibited in the, in the north. But they were exhibited after Gettysburg as well. And I can't help but think, and we can get to this in a few minutes, help but think that some of the reports of the Battle of Gettysburg and the implementation of the draft in New York City in mid-July resulted in the draft riots of I mean, I, th I think there's, there's, a, there's a real cause and effect. Uh, well, I, I think, you know, it, it's no accident that, I mean, there are lots of reasons why those draft riots in New York happen when they happen, but they, they happen on July 13th, only last two days, two to three days. So it's just after Gettysburg. And I think you're right. I think that circulation of knowledge about the scale of death makes people very nervous about fighting in this war. So the draft riots themselves are actually quite significant um, we have, what, 120 people dead and a couple of thousand injured in those New York City draft riots. A lot of looting. And I, I think what's happening there, in, in particular among the New York Irish community, they don't want to fight this war over emancipation. They say, if we do fight, we're not fighting it for that. Well, there, there also was, when the draft is coming in, because of volunteering before that, there are finally some jobs available for the Irish immigrants, and there's competition from free persons of color for those jobs, and there's, there's tension on the docks and in the warehouses and factories of they're, New York City, and all of a sudden, they're going to get trapped because the draft in the union was just for white males, okay? It was just for white males. It did not include free persons of color. No, this, you're entirely right. Look, you know, the, there's lots of things going on here, but one of them is that these Irish laborers are worried about the future implications of an emancipation. What's going to happen to those freed slaves? Are they going to come to New York and take my job? So these are very sort of base economic questions here. And these riots are so severe that Lincoln ends up redirecting some, some significant numbers of troops from the Battle of Gettysburg, after Gettysburg, to New York City to help put these riots down. And one of the reasons there were no New York militia there, they had been sent to Gettysburg. That's right. That's why the, the federal troops had to come in to, to help the police. And if you look at the patterns of, of property attack 
in New York City in July 1863, they're often directed towards homes of abolitionists and free African-American homes. Yep. So this idea that the North is this kind of sanctuary of racial equality, I think, is quite misleading too. There are tensions within Northern society, just as there are tensions within Southern society, over the desirability of this war, um, what it's going to be fought over, and who's going to be doing the fighting. Now, of course, later on, emancipation becomes a more widely accepted war aim for, for the Union. But after Gettysburg, it's so horrific that people become extremely disconcerted about having to fight in something like that again. Well, let's turn back to, to the battle. There were many interpretations, almost from the very beginning, and there are two from the Charleston Mercury, which is close to home. How did they react to the Battle of Gettysburg? On July the 16th, about two weeks after the battle, the Mercury proclaimed, Lee is master of the situation. Two weeks later, on July the 30th, it said of the Pennsylvania campaign, it is impossible for an invasion to have been more foolish and disastrous it was opportune neither in time nor circumstance. Pretty much a 180 degree turn. And the Confederate equivalent of Bob Dole or Senator Thurmond, who was the most loyal supporter of the military, was Senator Lewis T. Wigfall of Texas, who was originally a South Carolinian. He went out there because he had some problems back here. But he never, until Gettysburg, said anything negative about the military. He wrote, very damningly and said in the Senate very damning things about Robert E. Lee and described in print his utter want of generalship and then said the fact that Davis hasn't sacked him shows that Jefferson Davis is incompetent and he needs to go as well. Now, things changed over time, but that's some of the immediate reaction in the South to Gettysburg. Yeah, no, the, the, the Charleston Mercury is uh, one of those newspapers that you usually uh, take with a pinch of salt, but in this case, I think that they've reflected a general sentiment. So, you know, after Antietam, Lee escaped real censure, but he didn't after Gettysburg. A third of the army that marched north of the Potomac to Gettysburg did not march back south. He lost a third of, of the Army of Northern Virginia. It was a humiliation. Yeah. Um, and, of course, in that process, too, especially in a society that invests a great deal of kind of emotion in the quality of its leaders... Lee the Invincible has been defeated now. This, un this is a real morale issue. And to be fair for Lee, Lee, Lee recognizes his mistake and says, this is my fault. Yes, he said what every young officer had used to learn, and that is the commander alone is responsible. He accepted responsibility for what happened. He publicly, and he actually did <coughs> offer to resign. He did. And Davis did not accept his... his uh, in, in a way, I think the study in the kind of emotional dividend of Gettysburg is revealed in two speeches after, one by Lincoln and one by Davis. And Lincoln's obviously is extremely enthusiastic and talks about we are now towards the end. And Davis is morose and sour and realistically so. And he said, we have had a significant setback. And he was entirely right. And he didn't just mean the military loss. He also meant the loss in confidence in military leadership. Now let's look at Pickett's Charge, which is probably the most noted event of the battle. D describe that for folks. Pickett's Charge is important for lots of reasons, but principally because I think it provides a microcosm of, of the entire battle. The, the level of carnage in this moment is quite difficult to, to really wrap your head around. Pickett was, was deeply reluctant to engage in this charge, but Lee insisted. And in the absence of a, a verbal order, he still went ahead anyway. And what this entailed was about 12,500 men walking into a valley of death. And they had to walk about, oh, I don't know, almost a mile, about three quarters of a mile. When they first started off, those Confederates, many, many deep, were about a mile wide. By the time they reached the angle, the end, it was about half a mile wide. We had essentially 50% of them killed or injured. And if you do a rough calculation, and I think I'm right on this, the entire thing lasts about an hour, give or take. And that works out to about two deaths or slash wounded people every second, which is quite remarkable since even the very best riflemen 
using an Enfield rifle could reload their rifle uh, three times a minute. We don't have many repeating um, rifles uh, at Gettysburg. So it's the cannon, it's the rifle, and it's the, the, the slaughter at the angle that accounts for this, this incredibly large death rate and injury rate. There are many who call Pickett's charge the high tide of the Confederacy. When um, Pickett retreats to his line, um, Lee says to him, prepare your men, we might be attacked. And he says, um, well, I have no more men. It's a very, and you know, again, Lee sort of recognizes the gravity of this and it begins to sink in on him. And he does go to the field and he does try to rally the troops. But I think that for Lee, it was a, a profoundly crushing moment too. And there are ramifications. That, that's entirely right. I, you know, I know you're going to be talking about this um, with Winston Groom, but the fact that it happens in conjunction with Vicksburg is also important. It's a, a double whammy, if you will, Western and Eastern theaters at the same time. This is very difficult for the South to come back from. It doesn't make, make it impossible, but it makes it increasingly unlikely. Well, and if you just go another month, you have the, the evacuation of Battery Wagner and the closing of Charleston as a blockade port. All of those happening within about a six-week period. So the summer of 1863 is not a good time for the Confederacy. Well, let's talk a little bit more about what you're, you're doing with, with the census. You talked about the, the, the smell at Gettysburg, but can we segue a little bit to the home front, perhaps? Well, I, I think Gettysburg is, is, is interesting for another reason. I mean, it's one of those instances where you have a braiding of the civilian and military experience, since it is a town with a population. I mean, some of the most disconcerting evidence comes from um, the children who witnessed and experienced Gettysburg, because there were children there. And they're 14, and they're 15, and they're 16. And some of them record their experiences in their diaries. And they see things they couldn't possibly imagine. You know, men with their eyes blown out, limbs dangling. There's a kind of visual contortion to bodies that they're simply not used to. And you have to wonder, what was the long-term effect of witnessing that kind of carnage on that scale for a young person. So I think that it, Gettysburg is one of those instances where the civilian lines, the home front, because that's what it was for those people, kind of met uh, a very brutal moment in the Civil War. So this is a resident in Gettysburg, Susan Broadhead. And this quotation comes from July the 11th, okay, 1863, many days after Gettysburg. The atmosphere is loaded with the horrid smell of decaying horses and the remains of slaughtered animals, and it is said from the bodies of men imperfectly buried, I fear we shall be visited with pestilence for every breath we draw is made ugly by the stench. So we have two points here. The first is that her understanding of this battle is very much mediated through the stench of it. Okay. And weighing heavily on her mind is the fear of disease. Because you have to think about this. Germ theory is not really known until the 1880s and 1890s. At this point in time, people believe that disease is spread through smell, miasma. So when they're breathing in, they think they're breathing in pestilence, which in actual case, sometimes they were. So that's the civilian experience of Gettysburg. This longer quotation, which I won't uh, tax you with, but I will identify the irrelevant bits, is from a union nurse, Cornelia Hancock, July 7th, she came down from her small town in New Jersey, and she was 23 at the time. And for her, the experience of Gettysburg is not exclusively, but very powerfully olfactory. And she says explicitly, not the presence of the dead bodies themselves, swollen and disfigured as they were, and lying in heaps on every side, was as awful to the spectator as that deadly, nauseating atmosphere. And this is important which robbed the battlefield of its glory, the survivors of their victory, and the wounded of what little chance of life was left to them. In other words, everybody loses here. From her perspective, this stench has marred the entire experience of Gettysburg, even for the victors. And then she goes on to say, you know, it's the sun that's baking these bodies. And she concludes, she says, in every step, and she's literally tiptoeing through dead bodies, 
every step, the air grew heavier and fouler until it seemed to possess a palpable, horrible density that could be seen and felt and cut with a knife. Now, we might think of America in 1860 as a pretty smelly place, and it probably was. Uh, they were only just developing sewage systems in cities. But nobody had experienced this kind of stench in 1860. This was new. The scale was unprecedented. The nearest thing that you might have to this would be medieval Europe, but even then, probably not. And nobody experienced this level of decay, this stench, after either. This was an, a, a very unusual moment in American history. Before we get questions from the audience, Mark, how would you like to just wrap up this discussion of Gettysburg? So it's a very difficult thing to research, and I have to say I don't take any real satisfaction in researching this topic, and it's part of a larger project I'm doing on the Civil War. My father, as I told you at the beginning, was a paratrooper, and um, when I was uh, about to go to university, I said, well, Dad, you know, maybe I could join the paratroopers, and he laughed. And he said, well, Mark, he said, I, I want something better for you. He said, and let me tell you, the experience of war is not a pleasant thing. Writing about this is not a pleasant thing. On the one hand, you have extraordinary courage. You have almost unbelievable courage. I cannot believe that those folks at Pickett's Charge did what they did. So it is ennobling at some level. At a very basic level, the experience of war reminds us that war is a very bad thing, that war is a very dangerous thing, and war is a, it can cut your emotions to the quick and it can throw you back centuries. You're not used to experiencing this. Our understanding of war today is so antiseptic, we see it on the television, and then you can cut away from it. You can't cut away from this. And in those days, you couldn't cut away from the casualty figures that were published every day in the newspaper. But even, see, now that's interesting because uh, there was a numbness to those numbers. Just trying to think, to imagine what five, ten, fifteen thousand dead bodies is. Now this, there are no numbers here, but it conveys the extent and the depth of that experience. When you can cut the air with a knife because it stinks so badly of death, that gives you a sense of the gravity of this moment. Well, there's a very famous, talking about being numb to this, very famous diary here in Columbia, Emma Lacant's diary, daughter of a college professor here, and she was at a woman's, uh, they were doing bandages for the troops, and somebody said, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? He was killed at Shallow. And they just go on, it's just very matter of fact, wasn't he a nice boy? It's incorporated into their everyday life, and there's a kind of numbing in that process. Uh, Mary Chestnut talks about the numbing effect of it on, on the home front. All right, let's open it up now for questions. We've got about 15 minutes for questions. And again, if you ask them, I'll repeat them so that they can be recorded. Yes, sir, over here. Question is, what is your assessment, uh, Mark, of Longstreet's performance at Gettysburg. One of the um, real dangers of uh, writing anything on the Civil War is that you'll always talk to people who know much more about it than you do. <laughs> and this is a good illustration of that. My understanding of Gettysburg is not a military history as such. Look, I mean, I think that he, he warned Lee that Pickett's charge was a very bad idea. I think the evidence is quite clear that it was a very bad idea. It's interesting, right after the war, the two generals who were Confederate generals that were most, when the finger pointing got going, until, until the late 1870s, were Ewell and Early, particularly Early. But then in the late 1870s, sort of peace got made and Early became director of the Virginia Historical Society and Longstreet became the bad boy, partially because of his politics. He joined the Republican Party. Well, you know, historical memory is a funny thing too because, you know, that Lee is, is uh, so severely criticized by, by the Mercury immediately after the event, there is a softening in the, the historical memory of Lee that, that takes place much, much later. So the evaluation of military commanders and, and officials changes over time. So you, really your question is a kind of um, a technical military one. And I think it's very difficult to answer outside of that context unless you deal with the memory of an individual and how that memory is reconstituted over time. Yes, ma'am. There's a question back over here. Lots, there's been lots of battles with huge, huge casualties. 
much worse The question is lots of huge casualties, certainly Antietam over in Tennessee, you've got Chattanooga. Why did Gettysburg, was it perhaps so much worse? Well, I think this is a very good question, and there are lots of examples where people talk about the stench of death after Antietam, and lots of other battles too. But the scale of this is the issue. It's so much bigger, it's so much larger, that they're simply overwhelmed. They, they, they don't have the technology of burial. Okay? We don't yet have you know, the capacity to move bodies into... If we could do this today readily, because we have the capacity to dig very big holes quickly, but they didn't. And there was also this sense that you needed to bury them. Not just out of fear of pestilence, but they needed to be buried, because you didn't want them robbed of all their glory or their dignity. Now, the Confederate graves tended to be a lot shallower because the people who were usually doing the, 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 the burying um, weren't Confederates. And it doesn't mean to say that the, the folks doing the burying were being mean or wretched, but they were taking care of their own. But those graves tended to be shallower, and you could see them, and they, they weren't enough to contain that stench. But it's a good question. It's just I think this is a kind of good illustration, Gettysburg, of the scale of death and the, one of the implications of that scale. referred a number of times to modern warfare, but Pickett's charge is an 18th century strategy. So why was that strategy used? question is, Pickett's charge was an 18th century strategy. Why was that used? So um, when I use the phrase a modern war, that, that is a kind of historiographical conceit. This is a, a phrase that has been too easily bandied about by historians. The reason why they've used it is because some historians have argued that there was sufficient advance in technology, such not just killing technology, but deliverable technology. That is to say, railroads were used for the first time to deliver troops on a scale that could not be done with a speed that could not be done before. So that's why it's considered to be a modern war. It does not mean to imply that every particular maneuver within the context of that war had those modern hallmarks. So to me, it's not terribly surprising that these clumsy 18th century kind of Napoleonic tactics were sometimes used and sometimes used to disastrous effect too. They had studied Napoleon at West Point. Yeah, actually, Germany, yeah. who was the, the French military authority, was studied at West Point in the 1840s and, 18, and 1850s. And Yomini's work was, was read by both sides. So, so there was no real um, strategic or material advantage because they were all working from the same set of information. Uh, that's why you have these moments in which it just seems so sort of catastrophically numbing because they're doing the same thing. Y yes, ma'am. The Gatling gun in use at, the, at Gettysburg the Gad was the Gatling gun in use at Gettysburg? Uh, not that I know of. Not, now, that might, you know, th there are all sorts of things that are being used that I don't know about, but principally we're talking about the sort of Enfield rifle, some smooth bores. There were some repeating rifles used, but I don't think there were that many. I do know this, that um, 37,000 rifles were collected immediately after the Battle of Gettysburg, and 24,000 of them were still loaded. Don't forget the cannon, it's, not, it's, it's grape and canister, which... That's the that's big the shotgun. Yeah. Yes, sir, back there. We know we have the war memorials all across the country here in the South. Who helped return the bodies? The question about the memorials and whether bodies were returned is that, remember, there are no dog tags. One of the, I think, most chilling descriptions of going into battle are Union troops at the wilderness with their names pinned on their back of their uniforms so that their families could be notified. There was no notification. This, this was on such a scale. Bodies were being repatriated decades after the war. The Union made a major effort to do that. Gradually, some from Gettysburg were repatriated to the South. But there was a family in Florence that sent six sons off to war. One came back whole, as he said. One was wounded. One was known dead. The other three, nobody knew what happened until about 10 years ago when records were found, two died in prison camps and one a battle record was uncovered. But the family never knew what happened to those other sons. And that was a story, not necessarily on that scale, but fathers, sons, brothers, uncles went to war and in the horror of Gettysburg, where did their 
where do their bodies end up? And then this is Victorian America where being at the deathbed of one's loved one is a very important part of the ritual of sending them into the other world. And the scale of the war changes all that. There were some, um, shall we say, enterprising undertakers who would offer to um, go to Gettysburg and identify bodies and bring them back in a coffin, but you had to pay for it. And that wasn't terribly common, but it was used, um, but largely um, in the north and less so in the south. Okay. Well, I think we need to, to stop there. Again, I want to thank you all for coming out. This is Walter Edgar. The Battle of Gettysburg is not an easy topic to discuss or to write about, as Professor Smith noted during our conversation, but it was a crucial event of the American Civil War. This conversation is part of a series at the University of South Carolina, looking back 150 years to the American Civil War, sponsored by the College of Arts and Sciences. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.